Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Second Kings chapter 22. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. I like when we know the end of the story at the beginning. There's no spoilers here. Josiah means in the Hebrew, healed by Jehovah. Why would you say healed by Jehovah? Because his dad and his granddad were scumbags, right? So he's just been pulled out. How did he even get a name like that with those kinds of fathers? And we get some clue to that in that it tells us again the mother's name. Part of the mother's name is because we've seen in Israel and Judah this tradition, and really it's since Ahab and, and um, Jezebel, that they've started to name the moms. And part of the naming of the moms tells us something about the emphasis that uh, Queen Mother had on the rule of the empire. Obviously, an eight-year-old is not making trade agreements. So you have an adult in the room helping to run the kingdom because the eight-year-old is off playing with train sets in the corner. So you put a little kid crown on them, you start treating them like a king, but they don't really make decisions till they come of age, which is why we get the mother's name here. Jedidah, it means beloved, um, and likely at this point... Um, and I think this is what's happening, say, with Hezekiah going to Manasseh, with David going to Solomon. Kings don't have much to do with child rearing. And I think that's part of the problem of what's going on with Israel. And the reason the mother's names are there is because they're essentially responsible for the raising of the kids. And so we're starting to see that tradition just kind of emerge. It's not a God-ordained thing. And actually, it's been a problem for Israel because we don't see that fathers and sons have like personalities, as though one has mentored the next. So you get a great king, and then they're followed up by an entirely evil king, and we get the mother's name along with it. Well, this is her fault. <laughs> and the reverse is true, too. You get a godly king like Josiah that comes out after two ungodly kings, and the mother's name is mentioned because she did most of the raising of that kid. And the names give us some hint at that, too. Um, so we've had a number of moms in, in the listing, and, and, I, and, and honestly, it's one of those points where the Bible, I think, is giving credit to the mom's influence, the mom's grooming of the children, and the, the way in which ethics are taught to children and how that comes into play. Um, we also have this uh, fulfillment of prophecy that's going to be a shadow over this chapter. Not a shadow, a light. It's a light over this chapter. If you go back to 1 Kings 13 and flip back a few pages, there was this nameless guy that showed up. Behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And he goes to Jeroboam. Jeroboam's the son of Solomon, one of the, the first king of the northern kingdom after the split. And the sin of Jeroboam is we, he made a convenient Judaism. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You can just worship here. 
And, and he set up an altar at Bethel, and that altar is still around by the time that we see Josiah show up. And we're getting a bookend on the era of kings. The beginning of kings were these problems that are getting kind of resolved at the end of the book of kings. An interesting kind of thing. But there was a prophecy given to Jeroboam that... Um, that the that was against this altar that was set up at Bethel. And, and according to the word of the Lord, it said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. They actually name the person that's coming along. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and the men's bones he shall burn upon here. In other words, Jeroboam gets a nameless prophet, and I love that the Bible just says he's nameless people, that walks up and says, you know what God says? God says that one of your sons is going to be named, or one of the people in the line of David, in the house of David, is going to show up, and he's going to take all your fake priests, and he's going to burn their bones on this very altar that you're building right here. And oh, by the way, the guy's name is going to be Josiah. And so it's an interesting thing that we've seen a couple Josiahs show up, maybe in hope of fulfillment of this. Um, but as we are now moved forward 300 years, it's highly unlikely that Josiah was named because of the prophecy. It's been 300 years. That's longer than the United States has existed. So it's not like we're naming people today based on things that happened 300 years ago. Or we'd have a lot of like Jedediahs walking around the world. Um, but we don't. So... There's this idea that Josiah would show up and he would deal with this false worship. Um, and then we get the intro in verse 2 that he walks right in the sight of the Lord. That means, in the sight of the Lord means not according to his own opinion. He's doing what God says is right, not what's right in his own eyes. That's a pretty good intro for a king. Um, he will fix the house. He will read the Bible. <laughs> he will get convicted of sin and he will gather a fellowship of believers. This is the life of, of Josiah. Pretty good record. Like if you think, here's what a good king looks like. Um, he doesn't veer from the right hand or the left. That's a way of saying he doesn't depart from the law that's given in the Torah. He sticks to the law. Um, his mom taught him well. Verse 3. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. Um, that would be a, um, a regal 18th year. So he was 8. And then in the 18th year of King Josiah means he's now 26 math checkers. I'm on track. So he's 26 years old, but it's in the 18th year of the king that he sent uh, Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, and the son of Meshalam to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. It's interesting. We did Matthew 13 today. No real connection, but it was an, a reference to doorkeepers. So you do your own Bible study and see if there's a connection there. Um, but this practice of the priests collecting a kind of free will offering at the altar, for those of you that have been here every week, you remember back in 2 Kings 12 why they had that going on. It's because the priests were getting greedy. And they were taking the free will offerings and lining their pockets with them. Um, and back in 2 Kings 12, Joash was a good king. And he said, you guys got to fix the temple building. So take those free will donations and fix the temple building. Well, months later, it doesn't happen. So he says, okay, we got to change the system. Maybe the priest shouldn't handle this money. Maybe the free will offerings come right to Jerusalem. We set up a box next to the altar. We put a little hole in the top. We make the world's first piggy bank. 
And then we have the high priest and the scribe that handle that money and it goes straight to the work people. The temple gets fixed. We see that practice still in place here in verse 3. Um, and by going to Shaphan the scribe, and by going to Hilkiah the high priest, verse 4, he's going to the two people that had charge of that kind of free will donation box. Um, so it's been a few years. Uh, he's 26 years old. He makes his first decision as a king. So likely at 26, he's kind of come of age. The court feels that he's able to make decisions and be a king. And so one of the first things he does is he says, let's figure out how to fix up this temple. It's in disrepair. And there should be money for this, and it should not get in disrepair. Verse 5. He let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. He let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house. That's the purpose of this money. To carpenters and builders and masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need to be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully. So this is an interesting thing. We've had passages on money where we kind of walk away from that going, okay, good stewardship is a good thing. Pay attention to it. But here you get a passage on money that has no accounting. And the no accounting is because you save a ton of time and effort if you just trust the people you hire. We're going to hire you to get this work done. If the work gets done, we're just kind of fine with that. So this idea that the money has to go into the hands of the workers is a concept that becomes rooted in Jewish tradition. Paul talks about this when he talks to Timothy. And Timothy's like, I don't know if I should take money for the ministry. And Paul says, hey, the money for the ministry is for the workers in the ministry. And it's okay that if you're doing the work on the house, that you collect from it. And Paul references kind of indirectly references this passage. Like it's okay for the workers to earn their keep. And in the church, we don't have a big marble temple to fix up. We do have a church that needs to be taken care of. And we have people that do work for the church, and that work can cost money. Um, there's destruction that happens to the house that needs to get repaired. And people get all worked up, and it's like, you know what? That's why we have a love box. If you feel bad about something getting broken, you can help out in the love box. Um, but the idea of accounting for it and being worried about it uh, is something that is a, a part of the Jewish tradition here is we're not going to spend all of our time worrying about that because we're going to deal with people that deal faithfully with them. And we're going to trust the people that we hire to do the work are doing the work. Verse 8, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Hey, look what I found. It's a Bible. You know, and for them, the Bible, of course, is the Torah. Like we're reading, there's collections of scrolls. The temple would have a lot of them. The Book of Kings was likely a collection of those scrolls put together and gathered in one place. But when they say the Book of the Law in the house of the Lord, they're talking about the Torah, the five books. Specifically, you could argue they're talking about Deuteronomy, which was often called the Book of the Law. So what's in Deuteronomy? how the king should be living and how the country should be conducting itself. And Elkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Well, the, okay, so two amazing things. One, this is the high priest of the temple going, hey, look what I found, which tells you how far Judah has gotten. If that guy doesn't have a copy in his bedroom, we're in trouble as a community of Jews, right? So the high priest finds the book, blows the dust off. Hey, what's this thing? Um, it implies that he maybe read the book, or he had read the book at some point, but he gives it to Shaphan, the head scribe, and the scribe's entire job was to be making copies of the law and the book. 
So the fact that Shapin is a head scribe and has not said seen this book before, again, we are far off. So they're living off a tradition, but they haven't read the book themselves. So you got leaders of the Jewish culture, and we've had a we've seen in the Book of Kings that culture is shaky, but the leadership isn't reading the book. So major problem in the country, major spiritual void. And he gives him the book. And I love in verse 8, the end of it, and he read it. What if Shapin never read the book? What if he didn't sit down and hear what God's law was for humanity? What if he didn't fall in love with it? And I don't know that he did fall in love with it. We're going to see in the coming verses. I don't see a lot of passion from Shapin about it. But he read it. And at the very least... Hilkiah has, he finds the book and hands it to somebody. At the very least, Shaphan reads the book and gives it to somebody. We're going to see he goes one step further. Verse 9, so Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered into the hands of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. They've, they've, given up completely the fact that the king doesn't know about and then verse 10 then Shapen the scribe showed the king saying oh Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Shapen read it before the king first the priest finds it then he hands it to somebody who reads it who hands it to somebody and reads it to them is there any right way to read the scriptures no and I think some people are like oh I'm struggling with my daily devotions then have somebody read it to you get Bible on tape Nothing wrong with that. Like, we see examples of it in the Bible. Shaphan is just the, the non-digital version of Bible on tape. Know what God has to say. So, they've given up the practice. When Josiah became king, according to Deuteronomy 17, he should have handwritten a copy of the book of the law. He should have taken the first five books of the Bible and handwrote them. It should have been his first duty. And he started when he was eight years old. So there's no excuse for him being 26, not having seen this book before. What it means is they've completely disregarded what God said should happen. Uh, Levites had a teaching responsibility. That seems to be completely disregarded in the, in the kingdom. Which, you know, over the last two kings, we see that they had no regard. They put altars in the temple. Manasseh was evil, did some horrible things. They don't even know what Judaism is at this point. Um, so Hilkiah is a high priest that still has, remember, Manus's altars and temples and, frankly, prostitution centers in the temple. And he's the presiding high priest. So he gives the book to the scribe. The scribe actually reads it, which is good. Somebody knows how to read. Um, and they, they look at this. Um, it's interesting in that when they talk about the book of the law, it could be that we're not too far in the future. This could be Moses' original writing. And so what he finds in the back corner, it was that part of why it was in the back corner is that it was precious to the people who put it there. So it could be that what they pull out is in Moses's handwriting. Uh, and the paper could live that long theor theoretically, but giving it to the scribe would be a good decision if you were worried about the constitution of the paper. So if you're thinking this paper is really old and it's going to start to crumble, you get it to the scribe to make a copy as quick as you can. But that says something about the authenticity of the Bible and that this period of time that we've seen between there, um, there's, it's likely that some of these, we don't have as many versions of it as we think we do, that they would keep an original version from which the scribes would work. And then they would make, so, you know, if you play the game of Grapevine, every link in the Grapevine, the message changes a little bit. 
This would imply strongly that there's the book of the law is being kept so that you're only having one link for each of those scribes over time. Um, just a thought. So Shapin goes to the king. Um, as he finds the book, they read the book, and then they share the book. I, I don't want to miss the very simple connections and applications to our life. We find the Bible, we read the Bible, we share the Bible. And it's super simple. So verse uh, verse 9, so Shapin went to the king, um, and then this guy, Shapin, is now spreading the word to one other person. What we're reading here is the beginnings of a revival, which is really applicable as the Christian community is talking about revivals right now. This whole chapter is about a revival that happens in Israel. How does it start? Some guy finds the book and actually reads it. That's how a revival starts. Verse 10, Shapin the scribe shows it to the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. He doesn't even take credit for it, right? He just And he doesn't say he gave me the book of the law. He just says, oh, Hilkiah gave me a book. You see how he changes that? And then Shapin read it before the king. Josiah's pretty like, I'm bored. There's nothing on TV. Start reading. And so they just start reading the book. Um, the, the tone which... Shapin uses by saying a book doesn't express enthusiasm. Like at this point, they're just doing duty here. Um, but Deuteronomy 31, if they're reading Deuteronomy alone, they would have seen that the king should have written a copy. They would have seen that the Levites should be teaching it in the courtyard every day. And they would have seen in Deuteronomy 31 that the entire book of the law should be read to the entire nation at Passover every seven years. And then you're starting to think, oh, like, we shouldn't have hidden this thing in a closet. Can you imagine being a little kid and your parents like, all right, this is the year they're reading the whole book of the law. I would think for little kids, that'd be like, really? We got to sit through that whole thing? And the parents like, yes, be a good Jewish kid and sit quiet so we can get through it. Don't interrupt the speaker so we can get through it quick. Um, but that's not even happening. They're not reading it at all. So Shapin starts in verse 9 talking about money. Look at the priority that he gives. He's not that. He starts with overseers, payments, and then at the very end, verse 8, he's like, oh, and yeah, and then there's this book Hokia gave me. So he reads it before him. I got to think this reading of the Bible is probably the, one of the most influential in, in the history of the world. What a cool Bible study. And this guy clearly isn't excited about what he's reading, but as you read it, something changes. And as you know what God's law is, it does something to you. And I can't put my finger on it, um, but you become different when you understand what God wants. And whether or not you respond to it is your business, but you at least know what it is. Now you're accountable for it. Um, I would, and I would, again, point out, Josiah didn't read it for himself. He had a reader do it for him. This is what we do at church every Sunday. Ah, oh, it's hard for me to get into Bible study. Then show up every week. You don't need to get into Bible study. You just need to not be a disruption while we do one every week. And we'll get through the whole word of God as we do it. So he has the scribe read it aloud to him. And I just think as we as Christians need to sometimes give ourselves a break that it can just be that you go to a Bible study. And that's what gets Josiah all stirred up. It's not that he did this on his own in the privacy of his room. He had somebody come and say, hey, I got a cool book. All right, read it aloud. And he listened. So now it happened, verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, now notice the, it's elevated again, the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. Hearing the Bible had an effect on his heart. Why do you tear clothes? We've seen it multiple times. It's a sign of grief and agony and an extreme emotional reaction. 
So robes were precious. To rip them was a sign of remorse or regret, usually because somebody's died and you're mourning something. So Josiah's hearing this and he's like, man, our, com- our country's more screwed up than I thought. My dad and my grandpa, they were messed up, but we're so far past being messed up. We've been messed up since Solomon. You go all the way back through the book of Kings, we've been screwed up for a long time. So he grabs everybody at court and he says, court, we got to do our jobs. And I'm thinking some of the people at court aren't Jesus people because we got full on idol worship going on. But you work for the king and kings can chop your head off. So you do what you're told. So this is a revival, but let's keep in mind that it doesn't last more than the, the lifespan of Josiah's reign. So a lot of this is top-down revival, not bottom-up revival. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Mechaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asahiah the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people of all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that's aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that's written concerning us. This is an interesting mix of Jewish and pagan names. So if you look all these up in the Hebrew, uh, it's a real potpourri of things. If you're Hebrew, and and I say this girl's name is Grace, you know that that's not just a girl's name. It also means love that's given without, um, without any payback, right? It's grace. So we know that there's a meaning to that word in addition to the name. So when I say that list of the names, I just want to read it to you as a Hebrew listener would hear it. Okay, you ready for this? Verse 12. My portion is Jehovah, the priest. Brother Rising, son of Badger. Mouse, son of who is like God. Badger the scribe, made by Jehovah, a servant of the king. See, so you hear the potpourri? The animal names were part of how the pagans named their kids. So you got Jewish people being named with pagan names. We see more of this today than we used to. We see a lot of names that are animal names and people being named after animals. Nicknames tend to go this way, right? And so we, you know, we call Grant Buck, and it's because he liked deer when he was a kid, and it stuck. So you see these kinds of names pop up. In verse 13, this go inquire of the Lord piece concerning the words implies that he's called in his inner circle, his court. So you have one person who found a book, implied that they read it, handed it off to the scribe who actually read it. The scribe goes into the king who listens to it, and the king just says, we're going to react to this. And he starts commanding his court. He gains a fellowship of people that are going to go carry some out, carry out the will of the king. Great is the wrath. Josiah, when he says great is the wrath, has no immediate evidence that there is wrath coming. Um, but he's known from what he read in the book that there is a judgment coming. But there's no immediate signs of that. Assyria has been cleared out. They've lived in relative peace. Um, we see more in Chronicles, but the writers of Kings don't really add that in at this point. He obeyed the words of this book. It's not just a book, it's the book. It's this book. It's an essential book. So the reading of the word actually seemed to have an effect on Josiah, the rending of the clothes, the elevating of status. Um, He reads the book and then something in him wants to do what it says. As the king of Judah, he has no obligation to do what it says, other than the obligation given by God through that book. But it has a move on his heart. And I think it works like this. There's something written on our hearts where when we hear the law of God, we realize and know that it's true. 
The simplest version is thou shalt not kill. Something in us says, yeah, that, that's true. But when you go through the book of the law and even the little specific things, we realize that the grace of God is to create laws that are for our benefit. This is a loving God that gives us parameters to live by. And they're good parameters. David said he delights in the law. He sits and meditates on it day and night. And it brings his heart joy that we have an almighty God that gave us a set of rules that were for our good and for the good of, of a peaceful life with each other. He says to do according to. So it's not just to obey the words of the book. It's to do according to the words too. Obey the direct commands, but carry it out in the spirit of it also. Um, so what is good here to do according to it um, is that he hears it and then he responds to it and does something. We see that pattern throughout the scriptures. It's not enough to just hear the word of God. It, you have to decide, I want to do this with my life. I want to live according to this. So Jesus doesn't just say to believe in him. He says to believe in him and follow him. And the following part is what makes it so that we know that the, belief, the hearing has been done in the spirit. It says to do all that is written. That's another kind of piece to this. You hear me say this all the time. It's not enough to read selected passages. We, he wants to do according to what's all that is written in the book, which means we don't skip any of it. If we love God, we do as much of it as we can within our power to carry out. So we read it all. We understand it all. We do according to what we read there, which leaves room for changes in time periods and things like that. We don't have to worry about rules around how we treat our mules anymore. Um, but we need to do according to it, and we need to do all that's written, and not just parts of it. In other words, even with the scriptures, there's kind of an all-in mentality there. You've got to spread it out in front of you and take it all in. Second Chronicles 17 records that at this point, Josiah and this group of guys has the book read publicly to the, everybody in Jerusalem. That hasn't been done on record in the Bible for 250 years. So one of the first things they do is they follow that Deuteronomy passage and say, okay, we haven't read this aloud for a long time. We're going to do it right now. Um, it could be that they didn't even wait for a feast because they just hadn't put everything together that well. But I think in the spirit of it, there's no problem with us doing things in enthusiasm, even if we do them slightly wrong. God kind of keeps people throughout the scriptures accountable to the degree they know it. So in verse 14, we have Hilkiah the priest. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asaiah, Aziah, I don't know, went to Huldah the prophetess. So there's this whole committee of the king, and they're like, okay, we got to carry out the word of the Lord. They go to this lady named Huldah, who we know very little about. We just know her name's Huldah. The prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. So she's a tailor, Right? She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. In case we don't know who Huldah is, they give us her address, and they spoke with her. No details on her. We don't know who she is. We don't know why she has the respect and authority of the entire court. We just know that when they had trouble and it had to do with God, they went to somebody who they knew loved the Lord and followed the Lord. They go to Huldah. The word Huldah means weasel. Like, honestly, you get names here that are like, okay, where did that come from? Uh, in the Hebrew, in the, so 
there's this idea that she's the son of hope. She's the wife of, if you want to read that in the Hebrew, she's the wife of retribution, the son of hope, the son of super poor person. Like again, reading the names in this chapter was kind of fun. Um, I would take all those names and put them together and say, she's a, she's a nobody. And you got an entire kingdom of people, but this nobody seamstress the, the, who watches the wardrobe, and if it's the wardrobe of the king, that's how these people would know her. But still, she's like the, the, the prop keeper for the court. She's not exactly high ranking, but she is, has more authority in the kingdom of God than these people that have just read the word for the first time. And I think that's beautiful. God doesn't need rank and he doesn't need title. What he needs is a godly generation that sticks to what it says and believes that the truth is enough to live on and is satisfied with that. So this keeper of the wardrobe, it's not clear if that's Hulda or Harhas in the way that it's written. Either way, um, when Joash needs an outfit, he's talking to this family to get his outfits, not the Levites, when he, it, not the sons of the prophets. We know they're still around. Um, Definitely not the high priest that allows idol worship in the temple. He's not the guy to go to. And I think we're like that too. We don't go to the people with the highest rank. We go to the people we respect and that we honor when we need advice. So they're like, okay, we got to do this thing. How do we do it? So Josiah finds God speaking amongst the random people of his kingdom. Um, and that's a godlike process that we just see. And I, I think it's wonderful. Verse 15. Then she said to them, hold up. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the world's words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. Jerusalem's about to fry. I, so Hulda gives it to him straight. There's no cushioning. There's no easing. There's no trying to like rub the rough corners off this message. They're worried they're about to be judged for God's wrath. And she tells them, you're darn right. You're about to get judged for God's wrath. She says, tell the man who sent you and later says the king of Judah. The fact that when God's speaking that we think rank somehow gives us preference in God's eyes. When God speaks, it's just the man of Judah. It's not the king. Right? That's just a title that, from God's perspective, we're all just humans. It says, All the words of the book. God has seen that the court has read this book. And he respects and recognizes that they've read the book. And he's pointing out to them, I'm going to stay true to everything I said. You saw those prophecies, you saw those warnings, they're all going to come true. So, note at this point, Josiah knows that the people of God aren't going to escape the wrath of God. In other words, we're about to see a revival where the, the leader of that revival knows that God's word is coming true and that the people won't essentially repent. So he's going to do a lot of things top down to do everything he can do. Just because he knows that the country's going to, uh, you know, going to garbage doesn't erase his obligation to do everything he can do to save people. And I think that's an important message for us. Just because we think people are lost does not erase our obligation to preach the gospel. 
and to share it with them. So verse 18, but as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord? So now she's going to give a message just to Josiah. In this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. Again, he knows that he's listened to the Bible. I think it's a neat point that when she talks to the group, it's the words that you've read. But when it's a message just for the king, remember, he didn't read it himself. He had it read to him. God even sees that because it says the words which you have heard. It doesn't say the words you've read. So God's specific and accurate to a word. Um, verse 19, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, they would that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes and wept before me, and I also have heard you, says the Lord. Each person's accountable to the revelation they've heard, and God sees our heart when we hear it. Sometimes we hear the word of God, and everything in us pushes back against us. God sees that too. But what he saw with Josiah is when the words of God's command came and, and Josiah hears them, Josiah quickly understood, I'm responsible for some of this. And for my part, I don't want to go to my deathbed and not have done my part to, to reverse this trend. So God notes the hard hearts, and when he notes Josiah's heart was tender, it means he sees right into our heart. And he sees into our heart when we're hearing or reading the scriptures. How do we respond to what God says? And so if we have that kind of God, he hasn't changed. So when you're hearing the scriptures tonight, God sees how your heart responds to them. And you can respond poorly to me but it's the scripture you got to get me out of the way and be studying a bible study on your own while we study this i had sean's nuts but i'm going through the word and he goes through it so that's why i'm here he says you humbled yourself not before you know whatever groundhog elephant shapen whatever his name was he doesn't he doesn't humble himself before shapen the reader he humbles himself before the lord himself these are god's words that we're reading tonight so you put God first, you set aside your own will for God's will, and that humbling process is exactly what God is looking for. That's called repentance, is to say, I'm not right about everything, I'm going to trust that the Lord's right about everything. You're aligning yourself truthfully to the nature of reality. That's what's true is, you're not in charge, God is in charge. So when he humbles himself before the Lord, there's an idea of a recognition of sin and a turning and a changing of behavior. And we call that repentance. It's exactly what God looks for. Here's how revival starts. One guy finds a book. He hands it to a friend to read. That friend hands it to another friend and reads it aloud to him because he's a lazy reader. And then that person humbles his heart and changes his behavior and revival starts to happen. He gathers everybody at his court and says, we are going to do what this book says. And it doesn't say that everybody at court was on board with it. It just, they humbled themselves to a king who humbled himself to the Lord God Almighty. So the authority structure is in the right order. Amen. Like this is cool. Very small group of people. Verse 20, Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Boy, that's the hope. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. In other words, your sons aren't going to carry on what you're about to do. But Josiah does it anyways. And the grace of God is that he protects Josiah from seeing the wrath that's to come out of mercy. Because you've humbled your heart, you're not going to see the calamity. 
So this morning we're reading in Mark 13 about all the calamities. And the natural thing is to worry about calamity. But here in the Old Testament, we've got part of a pattern where God removes his people before the calamity comes. So don't worry about that. You're not going to see the, the wrath that you're so worried about. And when Josiah's eyes are cleared of worrying about God's wrath, he gets about the business of doing the work of God. Stops worrying about the wrath, starts worrying about the honoring of God in his own life and in the lives of the people that he's got authority over. So he's still going to remove Judah from the land, but he's going to delay a little bit so Josiah can have a life of peace. And that's essentially the, the best a person can act score. You're going to die and be buried, it says, with your fathers, meaning David, Solomon, Hezekiah. Your bones are going to rest with their bones. What a cool thing to like be raised from the dead at the coming of Jesus Christ. And you get up and you look and there's David, there's Solomon, there's Hezekiah, there's Joash. And you're like, hey guys, how are you? And you know who they are because you're the further. And they're like, who the heck are you? You know, I just like the idea that the bones being buried with those people you love and, you know, depending on how you see resurrection happening. I don't want to get too deep into that wormhole. So you die and you're buried with your fathers, at least in the Old Testament, that's a relevant thing. And I think part of the relevance of that is that when the dead are raised from their sleep, then they're going to be raised next to the people that are part of their family. That's kind of cool. So we have revivals. We have examples of, of revivals in the Bible. Um, we are told to watch for them as believers. Matt, uh, Mark 13, 21, I'll remind you from this morning. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he's there, don't believe it. For false Christs and prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The entire chapter reminds us, watch and get yourself ready for the Lord's return. And so don't get worried when there's stuff happening over there across the country. Be worried about what's going on with your faith community and your life and your heart. Get your heart tender, hear the word, share it with the person next to you. Take care of your own business. So, again, here's how revival happens. A renewed interest in God's word, according to this chapter. A hunger for it even, a desire like, boy, we haven't seen anything like this. Like, you got a generation that haven't heard the word, and suddenly people find it, it's exciting. Readers that are willing to share God's word, and even to the point of reading the entire thing out loud to a friend. That's a good friend. Or a king servant. A deep, heartfelt, robe-ripping remorse from the king that is to get rid of sin and recognizing that they've fallen short of the glory of God. Repentance. A gathering or a fellowship. Here we have seven people. If you include Huldah, you've got a perfect seven people that have gathered. And they're earnestly seeking God's word, and moreover, they're seeking to do it. And then in verse 5, or I'm sorry, the fifth thing is, the Spirit of God hears the people, and God responds to the people. So it's not enough for the people to do things to create a revival. The last piece of revival is God speaks through Huldah and says, I've heard you, I've seen you, and I'm going to change some things. And so there's a response from God's Spirit, because ultimately God's Spirit makes the revival happen. So we can be lured into thinking revival is an emotional outpouring. I think the biblical examples of revival are that it's much deeper than that. It goes much deeper than that. Life happens at the hunger for, the sharing of, the hearing of, and the doing of God's word. That's when revival starts to happen. First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards his summary of how revival happened was they exalted Jesus, they rejected Satan, they prioritized the Bible, and they started loving others. 
And in the history books, we just read that there was a great awakening in America, second great awakening. Uh, the summary of that from the people that were there is that they had prayer revivals and they had an emphasis on not letting the God's word fizzle out in their life. So it was an emotional start, but then they started reading the Bible together. That was the second great awakening in America. History books just say there was a great awakening. All these people turned back to Jesus. But when you read their writing, they say they turned back to the teaching of God's word, just like we see in this chapter. Chinese revivals. Talk to the people in China about revivals going on in China right now. They're defined by their secret. They're quiet. We don't make a lot of noise. And there's a repentance from sin. And we have Bible studies in our houses. A return to God's word, a repentance from sin. Billy Graham revivals. Billy Graham, here's how revival happens. God's word, your sin, pray for forgiveness, share the gospel. Sound familiar? Just over and over and over again, Christians, we've been told what a revival looks like. And it always has those elements. God's word, repentance from sin, praying for forgiveness, sharing God's word. Read it and do it. And suddenly God's spirit starts to respond. God sees that we've read the word. He sees our tender heart when we read it. And then he makes decisions about how to act in the world. And so I, I think it's amazing how we see that again and again and again. But as humans, we tend to think we make revivals happen. That we need to work harder to make them happen. We just need to tend to ourselves. Be in the word, be in the scriptures, and do what it says. Chapter 23, now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. Now they're getting the leadership. The king went up to the house of the Lord, that's the temple, with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's the entire town, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which has been found in the house of the Lord. That's not a short meeting. <laughs> this is a long meeting. But the king's going to read you a book. So the first time through, somebody read it to him. And I think it's cool that this time he doesn't just have the scribe read it. He reads it himself. There is a gaining confidence for Josiah as we see this progress along. So the elders would be the key heads of the family from all over that have been brought back, the ones that haven't been killed off. And then Judean families come together, the men of Judah, that's an expanded group, and we see more and more people. And then it expands again, all the inhabitants. So representatives from the other cities, but everybody in the city of Jerusalem. If you live in the capital, the king's going to read a book today. It's reading time. It's reading hour with King Josiah. And all the people, both great and small, there's an emphasis on the fact that everybody hears the word of God. It's not about rank. It's not just that some people need to read it. It's that everyone needs to read it. So they know what's going to happen and why they're doing it. And he read. So first it was read to him, then he reads to other. You know, this isn't the, the gospel that gets read. to This revival doesn't happen because they read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This revival, and, and sometimes we pick on the Torah, this revival happens because they read the creation, the history, the laws, and the applications. And if you count Leviticus, they read about how worship was expected. That's enough for revival is the first five books of the Bible. You know what God wants and you know how to do it. It's about obedience to what he says, nothing less. And if you get a whole city of people or a nation of people that just say, we're going to live under this law, you have what you call a revival. So God told them how to renew the nation. I want to read you one passage from what they would have been reading aloud as a city right now. Deuteronomy 31, verse 10. 
And Moses commanded them saying at the end of every seven years in the solemnity of the year of release in the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel is to come to appear before the Lord thy God. Again, I don't think they waited for this. They just did it. In the place where he shall choose, Jerusalem, you shall read this law in all the hearing, all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women, children, and any stranger that's within your gates, that they might hear, that they might learn, and fear the Lord your God, and observe and do all the words of the law. That is, and that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God. They're doing exactly what they read to do. It's, there's very close fidelity to what they're reading in Deuteronomy. When it, and again, all the words are being read, and we've seen that language in, the, in this chapter in verse 2. That Verse 2 is a long verse, isn't it? All the words of the book of the covenant. It, it's almost like it's coming right out of Deuteronomy. So even the genealogies, by the way, this includes the genealogies. So get ready. We're going to read through the genealogies, and they read through them. All the words, not all the chapters, all the words. So listen up, kids. And even the Deuteronomy references, like, this is actually for the kids. There wasn't Sunday school. We don't care if they're not old enough to understand it. We want them to hear it, that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord. And if you're doing it every seven years, they're going to get that as they grow up, right? So they found it in the house of the Lord. There's enough tradition here that they still call the house of the Lord Yahweh's, but they're not acting like it is Yahweh's house anymore. In fact, they've corrupted it. So then the king, verse 3, stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord. He's making a covenant because that's what he read in the Old Testament. That's what they did. To follow the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. The king's taken a stand. We'll take a stand too. This is called good politics. So they made a covenant. The actual Hebrew there is he cut a covenant. It could be that he's doing exactly what he read in Genesis 15, where they cut the animal and split it in two and walk between it. Or it could be that that's just, um, is it a euphemism? Like a turn of phrase that comes from the Genesis practice. But the, the word in our chapter is actually that he cut a covenant um, and he did that. At the very least, he's doing what Joshua did in Joshua 24. He's renewing the covenant of God's people to God. We're going to return to this covenant. So now it's all the people. Last chapter, it was the, it was the court. But now all the people take a stand for the covenant. This is a revival. This isn't just a handful. This is the entire city making a vow together. I think this is really exciting. A work of God amongst the people happens in kind of a massive way here. And I wonder to some degree, because we're only a generation away from being hauled off to Babylon, I wonder if this is renewing the people of God for God after the decision, because we've already read the wrath is coming. I wonder if God's renewing and restoring their faith so that they're ready to go to Babylon. And when they go to Babylon, they don't just abandon their faith when they get there. However, nearly all of them will bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, there's only three guys that get thrown into a fiery furnace. It means the rest of Israel took a bow. But this renewing of the spirit, this renewing of love, the parents of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or the grandparents, are likely taking these vows together. And so there's some of them that teach their kids. And that's all God needs is that small little remnant. 
the Daniel that says, I'll eat the vegetables, thank you, because I'm not going to eat idol worship meat. And so this revival that's going on could be just a cleaning of house for God in order to prep them for the hardship that's coming. And so I wonder if that's the case. We'll see what you think after we're done. Verse 4, the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal and Asherah and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. This is a very particular thing. Not only did he burn them, he was careful to bring those ashes to Bethel. Why? I think he knows that there was a prophecy about him. Um, revival doesn't start with other people getting holy. It starts with them cleaning their own house. The temple that they're responsible for is going to get the idols out of it. And I think it's important to note, even though everybody's hearing the word of God, we don't know what happened when they went back to their houses. And there's no evidence that idol worship is eliminated from Jerusalem after today because we see it pop back up in the next generation. But at least the house of God is going to get cleaned out. Uh, Baal is, there's there the Baal, but there were many Baals. They were pagan gods of prosperity, wealth and power, and fertility from the male side. Asheroth were female pagan gods of primarily fertility, but also prosperity, wealth, and power through what you'd get. So Baals and Asheroths go together. The mention of the hosts of heaven is the influence of Assyrian and Babylonian religion. All of that stuff's getting cleaned out. Verse 5. Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn the incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. So now we're going past the temple and past Jerusalem. We're going out into the countryside, which tells you how little control Assyria has. Remember, when Assyria came with Hezekiah, they had eliminated every other city. So it shows a complete wiping out of Assyria's influence because they're now marching around the countryside. And those who burned incense to Baal and the sun, the moon, the constellations, to all the hosts of heaven, verse 6. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. This is not showing a high regard for Baal, right? The whole point here is to desecrate and curse um, touching dead things in Jewish tradition curses you. It means you're unclean. So by taking those ashes and putting them on graves, it doesn't matter if they're rich people or poor people, just throwing them on common people graves makes them um, unclean. The idolatrous priests in this passage, verse 5, is one word in the Hebrew, it's kamar. So he then removed the kamar whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn. Uh, Kamar is an interesting word. It means shrunken or blackness. So something shriveled and dark. And it's likely that name came from a group of priests that would be doing all this burning of incense, especially Chamosh, where you've got these red hot furnaces and they're working next to them all day, that their skin would actually shrivel and get blackened or charred from doing that. Think like a coal miner coming out of the mines. So they would call these priests blackness, um, or it could be from self-harm. The priests would do, they would cut themselves and do self-harm, and as those wounds healed, the ashes would sink into them and turn their skin and their faces black. So they got kind of a word, kamar. They became the kamar priests. 
You could see them walking down the streets because they were scary looking. And they removed the idolatrous priests. He does, if he doesn't remove the evil people, the evil people are just going to keep doing evil. So he has to get rid of them. And it's not just the statues then that they're removing here. It's the people that promote the statues that, that Josiah starts to remove. Kidron has been mentioned a few times. The Kidron and the Hinnom Valley make a V, and Jerusalem sits in the, the crux of that V. So when you talk about the Kidron Valley and the Hinnom Valley, they kind of go together, and they're actually kind of even more of an L shape. Um, what's key about this valley is that it's outside Jerusalem. It's about a 15-minute walk downhill. So if you look at pictures of Jerusalem, no matter which direction you're coming from, you're going up into Jerusalem. And you're coming up out of the Kidron or the Hinnom Valley in all likelihood, and you're walking up that area. So to throw these things at the bottom of this hill is to throw them within sight of the pathway. And so they're making an area of this area, in this corner of Kidron and Hinnom, be a burning pit for all this idol stuff. This is important to Israel's history because this place takes on a name, and we'll get back to it later. Um, but there's just, just keep note that they keep mentioning that that's where the burning is happening. The sun, moon, the constellations, these are wondrous things. But when we start to worship those things that God made, instead of worshiping God, we just moved into idol worship. So now it's not a statue. They're worshiping things in the world that God's put together. And I just, to note the progression of paganism there, um, is part of where we get the idea that idols are spiritual. They're not just actual statues. So you can turn even the sun into an idol if you want to. The main draw here is to worship the created, not the creator. And that's a problem for God. The host of heaven is not to be worshipped. Angels are supposed to be obedient to God. And they, they don't accept worship. Demons are angelic beings that actually want worship and ask for it and demand it. Verse 7. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Now we're doing uh, Israel wide. And he broke down the high places at the gates, which were all at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, governor of the city which were left of the city gate. Nevertheless, verse 9, the priests of the high priests did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. Let's start with the ritual booths. The ritual booths are private little one-hour rental hotel rooms, if, if you know what I mean. I'll keep that PG. But pagan religion had a lot of temple prostitution going on, so that's what these booths were. The booth, word booth there is a little house or little tent. They even have a feast of booths, right? We just have a private space you can go into that's kind of your little um, place. The main draw then of going to the temple for these perverted people was sex. And so when you look at the word perverted persons, that would be, a, it has a, it's a male word, but that could just be linguistic. It means prostitute. So the perverted people are people of sexual perversion, uh, some people jump on that because it's the same word that gets used in the description of Sodom. So they say that, that, well, that's just homosexuality that's the problem here. The word's much more general than that. It means all sexual perversion. And, and that means adultery for heterosexuals 
as much as it means adultery for homosexuals, right? It is the perversion of what God's plan was, was one man and one woman in a lifetime commitment. So you got these people that go to these booths and it's not a lifetime commitment and that's the problem. You're already perverting things at that point. But it would also include homosexuality too. And so you get this idea that that's a problem and God throughout the Bible is consistent on that topic. The priests had burned incense. They were compromised priests. We're talking about the priests of the temple of God burning incense to other gods. This is not good. Um, they sold convenient worship. That's the whole point here. They set up these high places and they just set up worship where they want, which for me is like, okay, so should we be doing a house church? Because that's really convenient. I like my sofa. Um, I don't think that's what this is talking about. It's God at this point in time had a place where his name resided and they were commanded to go to the temple. We do not have the same commands. Incense then gets burnt in God's house. That's not bad. In and of itself, incense is actually burned in the Holy of Holies according to God's law. The problem isn't the burning of incense. The problem is the burning of incense as an image of prayer to other gods and to worship that whole process. Note the details on how each of these things got to the temple is not that explained. Kings kind of doesn't go through each of these things arriving, but it does talk about each of these things getting kicked out. Um, so again, we've read through the book of Kings word by word, and we haven't seen the, the story behind each of these things, but we have seen that Israel has had sin creep in on its life and sin creeps in quietly and slowly. And it's unnoticeable when it gets time to clean it out. You realize, dang, how did that get there? It's like when you move out of a house and you realize how dirty things were after you move the furniture you're like, dang, how did that happen? And, the, and you kind of are embarrassed because there's scuzz on the wall and dust bunnies on the corners of the floor. Well, he's cleaning out the dust bunnies. And now they take a look and everywhere they look, there's sin. And so they start in the temple. They move to Jerusalem. They start moving outside Jerusalem. They clean up these spots. And then we get some really specific things that get cleaned out. Verse 10. And he defiled Topheth, like we should know what that is. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. So again, Hinnom and Kidron are the same little trench that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Moloch. Oh, we know what Topheth is. Topheth is in the Aramaic, it's called a fireplace. It's the, it's the furnace that they burnt children in. Um, in the Hebrew, the exact same word Topheth, it means fireplace in the Aramaic, but in the Hebrew, it means spit worthy. It is worthy of your spit. That's it. And I just like how Jewish people had ways of mocking things. Um, or literally, Topheth in the Hebrew is that thing on which I spit. So it would be a tradition. If you're walking up into Jerusalem and you're going by the, the Hinnom, that side of the road that's the Hinnom Valley, you would then cast a spit off to the side of the road, creating a small pool of spit. Um, and, and it was a place where curses happened. The other place with Topheth, this fireplace, is they're dumping all these things, and this is about a 10-minute walk from where the other bonfires are. Um, later, this is going to be called the place of slaughter in Jeremiah 7.32. Jeremiah is an active prophet right now, warning them that this is going to, that the wrath of God is coming. Um, in Hinnom, or the Valley of Hinnom, or in the Hebrew, that's Gehenna, or that's the way we see Jesus refer to this place. He calls it Gehenna. In the Latin, the word for Gehenna is hell. 
And so this is the place where we see a burning pit that starts in this chapter, taking all the idols and things of this world that are worthy of the fire getting thrown on the fire. And Gehenna becomes a burn pit. And that burning place burns forever. And it is a place where the fires never go out because you're always dumping your garbage on it. And the fire is always kept lit so the garbage gets turned to ash. You walk through Gehenna, you're covered with filth because the ash is in the air thick. It's down in this valley, so it doesn't necessarily blow up into the city. It's kind of a good dump. It is, to this day, a place that you can walk through Gehenna if you want to. There aren't ever burning fires in Gehenna at this point, but it's a pretty desolate, nasty-looking place in the middle of a major metro area. They haven't built there. They haven't done anything to it because the land itself is cursed, and the curse goes all... This is where they burned the altar of Topheth. This is where they end, ended abortion in Jerusalem. And Josiah said, no more. There's no place to go burn your babies. Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear those who will kill your body, but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and your body in Gehenna, in hell. So worry about that. Worry about the idols. Worry about the things that get your attention that deserve to be in the cursed spit place of hell. That's what you should spend your time thinking about. Focus on the Lord. The word Jesus uses for hell is the Valley of Hinnom, uh, if you do the translations. It's a visual image of what happens to things that are not of God. To pass through the fire, I think we know what that is. Verse 11, then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. Uh, this is a Babylonian practice. At the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down and pulverized there. Pulverized is to take, you can break down a wooden thing, by snapping it down, but you can't necessarily burn stone. So they actually pulverize the stone, which is to beat it into a fine dust. I'd be like, who's the guy that got that job? Frankly, you give it to somebody like Grant that likes to use a sledgehammer. Grant, I want you to take this stone and I want you to pulverize it. And he gets a whole day to just bang away at it. So pulverized there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. They threw it into the same valley. So we see at this point, a, a fixing of what's happened, a fixing of Jeroboam's stuff is coming next, but a fixing first of Ahaz, Manasseh. We're kind of going back through the book of Kings, and and Josiah is doing everything he can do to right every single wrong that's been done through the history of Israel. So he's going to go way further than just what he thinks is back to good. He's going to go back to what the Bible says is good. So he's going to, we'll see it, he's going to start touring it there. But the idea of those altars, the upper chamber of Ahaz, is that they had brought the idol worship into the palace. So first he cleaned out the temple, Jerusalem, got rid of the high public places, but now he's going into the private places. Nobody saw what Ahaz had in his personal home, but Josiah's even cleaning out his house. We have a lot of things in our homes that nobody else sees, but God sees them. And God says to clean out even those private things. And there's no elitism here. We don't have different rules for kings than we do for everybody else. So the common high places get taken down, but the little booths of Ahaz also get taken down. He makes them public. 
He has them pulverized. He has them thrown into the kingdom. He, everybody can see that the sin was in their houses and in private places. Verse 13, Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem. Now he's going east. Which were on the south of Mount, Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, for Milcom, the abominations of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images, and filled their places with the bones of men, which would be to, again, defile them and make them unusable for religious use. So he's going all over the land. Now he's going all the back to the stuff. We started with the stuff that Amanasa had set up and Ahaz. Now we're going all the way back to the things Solomon set up. These would be 300-year-old artifacts to the Israelite people. Like, he's destroying their museums now. Like, those don't get to stick around. We want no record of this in Israel. So some of this sin is going way back. And this tradition is the thing that I, I think it would be hard. Like, we keep idols in our museums. We haven't destroyed them. So it would be a hard argument to say we're going to destroy these things Solomon put up. I mean, that's history for them. But tradition can be an idol too. And Josiah even goes in that. He says, this is wrong according to God. It's not a tradition we're going to keep. So he defiles them. The bones of men would be to pull up graves and throw them on there, which by any cultural standard is just icky. And now we're going to make this stuff icky. We're not going to see it as a relic we're going to keep. We're going to treat it for what it is. Verse 15. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel. Now we get to deal with Bethel. And the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nepat, who made Israel sin, had made. Both that altar and the high place that he broke down. And he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the, women, the, the wooden image. Throughout Kings, we've seen like the sins of Jeroboam. Well, Josiah is the first king to even deal with those. Like we're going to go back and do this. By the way that we sow a total retraction of the Assyrian conquest, because now we're all the way in Bethel. Bethel's long been a seat of idolatry for the, for the Jewish people. It's been a center of a compromised faith. And Jeroboam set it up, again, years, generations before. And, and throughout its history, Bethel was set up as a place where you could call yourself a Jew, but do it your own way. And what I find really ironic is we have a college that named themselves after this town, which is an odd thing there. Well, in the Hebrew, it means house of God. Okay, have you read the Bible and what it says about Bethel? This wasn't a great place. It has some history. You know, there's some things that happened there back with Jacob, but it's an odd name to name your college if you're a Bible-reading person. But I'm just saying. That said, there's some good people at Bethel, and we have a lot of Bethel grads here, so I don't, I don't want to offend anybody, but you're just seeing this in context, and you're like, wow, it's just weird to see the name of that place used in that way. But anyways, an image of calling yourself a believer, but kind of believing whatever you want and calling that okay. That's what Bethel's known for in the Bible. Verse 16, as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs, and burned them on the altar, and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. That's the prophecy I read at the beginning of the night. So he does exactly what the prophecy says. Now you could say, well, maybe he's just doing it because it was written. Yeah, okay. 
the prophecy is still perfectly fulfilled by a guy named Josiah. Then he said, what gravestone is this I see? Well, this is an interesting passage. So the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you've done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, well, leave him alone. Let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. That nameless dude gets honored years after he's buried. And what he said and how faithful he was to the Lord to walk up and tell um, tell the king that this evil you're doing here at Bethel will be fixed by a guy named Josiah. He's going to tear this thing down and he's going to burn all your bones on that altar before he does. That's exactly what he does. The implication or the tone here where it's, hey, what gravestone is that? It could be that they're like looking over and they're like, hey, that's that nameless guy, but they don't know the name either. So it's not like they can say, hey, that's so-and-so's tomb. They're just like, hey, what's that? So there has to be some tradition here where the people around knew that that was the gravestone of Mr. Nameless Guy. Um, or they actually knew the name, and that's in a different script that we don't have in the Bible. Burning bones on a false altar. Josiah realizes that he's at the location where all this was prophesied. It seems like being the first time he's read the book, being not that long ago, that maybe he's not that big of a Bible scholar and that he's fulfilling prophecy and not knowing it. I like that thought. Another way to read it is he's doing this because the Bible said to, and he recognized that story when they point out the grave. 1 Kings 13, 12, Josiah by name and upon thee shall offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. The man of God, here's the gravestone, there it happens. Confirmation. Everything you're doing, Josiah, was predicted. God knew you were going to do it. And you're doing it in part because God's giving you time to take and clean house. Clean house really before the bad guys come and haul them off to Babylon. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high priests that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. It's been generations since the kings of Judah had any right to move about in this area, which you really get the impression this area has been vacated. Like people are just, he's moving uh, without an army and he's doing as he pleases wherever he goes. Uh, the kings of Israel had made a promise to made a, uh, had made to provoke the Lord to anger, and he did to them according to all the deeds that he had done in Bethel. He executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars. So they get burned on their own altars and burned men's bones on them, and he returned to Jerusalem. Remember, some of these priests are giving human sacrifices. Some of these priests are, are giving children to pass through the fire. It's I don't have a problem with the justice that if that's the kind of religion you're leading and you've burned other people on this altar, that the very just consequence for those priests is to burn on that altar just like they've done to so many other people. And so you get this idea. There's nothing here that says the Lord told them to burn them on the altars, but Josiah is kind of taking that on himself and he's providing a just consequence. He's the king of Israel and it says he executed, word 20, he did not murder, he did not kill out of anger. This was a judicial decision. Those that worship other gods and bring those kinds of um, spiritualism and sorcery, the, the actual consequence for them under the law was to be executed wasn't to be murdered, anger, and hate. It was just to be ended so they can't continue that religion anymore. 
So he executes them, which is his right as a king. Do not read that it is our job in the modern era to go around killing people that don't worship our religion. That's not the case because the law says that's the job of a judge and a king. None of us are judges or kings of Israel. It's not our job to do that. In fact, Jesus gave us another command. We're to love our enemies. And that's tough. We're not to practice their religion with them, but we are to love them. We're not to allow them to practice their religion in our Bible study. Like, we can spiritually kick them out of here for doing that. We don't want that. Um, but he, he removes the folks in Judah, and when he gets to Samaria, he executes the folks, which seems to imply that he ran them out of Israel so he wouldn't sully the soil of Israel with who they were. Um, but when he's up in Samaria, he's not too worried about sullying the soil. So he's not dealing with Jews necessarily in verse 20. He's dealing with Assyrians that have been transplanted into Samaria. So again, um, it's a uniquely Samaritan area at this point in history. Verse 21, then the kings commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover of the Lord your God. So he's done all the cleaning of house and got rid of the negatives, but he's replacing the negatives with something. I think this is important for revival. If you're going to get the sin out of your life, replace it with something, or all you did is cleaned out the house and the bad stuff will come back tenfold. You got to clean out the house and then replace it with something good. So if you're going to get rid of certain pastimes because you think they're sinful, replace them with other pastimes. Go to Alyssa's art nights and learn how to do watercolor, right? Replace those hobbies and habits that are leading you to sin. Replace them with something better. And if you don't replace them and form new habits, those old sins are going to come right back. They're just waiting for the entry point. So I love verse 21. The king commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover to the Lord your God. Not of the Lord, to the Lord. When we do God's things, it's for God that we do those things. It's to his honor. As is written in the book of the covenant, verse 22. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel. Nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Great ending to the chapter. I love the fact. Now, let's be realistic. When, when Solomon held Passover, there were hundreds of thousands of sacrifices being made. The kingdom was at its height. It's kind of bragging to say there's never been a Passover like this before. But here's what I'm going to suggest. What God looks at has always been the heart, not the size. It's not the number of sacrifices. God says, I don't desire sacrifices, but mercy. And what's happening in Israel right now, it isn't about the size of the Passover, but the people of God having a spirit of revival. We're going to get the garbage and filth out of our country, and we're super happy about that. We're glad to see the garbage gone. So when it says there's never been a Passover like this before, I think it's a, a people of God just finding God again. This is awesome. We like burning things. And we like getting rid of the filth and the smut. And we like the idea that we can try to be holy. So they have memory. They have a feast. Passover includes family time. Like part of Passover is just to get together as a family and have a family night. They read the word together at Passover. That's part of the Passover celebrations, reading the scriptures. A celebration. So the idea here is they've done all this work to clean out the junk. And then they're going to have a party. 
And it's going to be an awesome party. In fact, they're so excited about it in verse 22. There's never been a party like this before. So, you know, I just love the idea that they're going to get together and party like it's 628 BC. Like, it's just going to be like, this is the best. You know, big, big signs, Passover 628. You know, they're having a great time with this. And they're just going to have a celebration. It's going to be reverent and joyful. It's a big deal to them. Um, it would be like for us if we were just going to say, you know what, we're going to do Christmas like we've never seen it before and to have that kind of excitement. Why this year? Because this year we've renewed our hearts to the Lord. It's all about our heart. Past Passovers have just been motions that we go through. But this year, Easter, man, Easter's going to be the best Easter ever. And I love the, the enthusiasm of verse 22. That's how they're thinking about it. So Josiah can't force anyone to serve God. He can't. But what he can do is say, you're not going to have this smut put in front of you every time you walk into the house of God. And you know what? As king of Jerusalem, you're not going to see it anywhere in this city. And wait a second. I'm the king of Judah. You're not going to see this junk anywhere in Judah. Well, wait a second. God actually, if I read this book, he actually gave Josiah the authority over all of the promised land. And hey, there's nobody that can stop him up in Samaria. So he goes up to Bethel. He goes up to Samaria. And he says, you know what? This stuff isn't going to be even seen in the neighboring countryside. Because no, if we're, we can, nobody's going to stop us. We can go up into Canada and get rid of the smut. Like, what are they going to do? Try to stop us? You know, some, try to chase us on their horses? So there's this idea that Josiah says, I'm going to clean this out. And, I'm, and as king, I'm gonna, I can't force people to serve the Lord, but I can throw a Passover feast like they've never seen before. I can do everything I can do to invite them into a new life in the kingdom. And as Christians, we have a very similar situation. We can't force people to believe in the Lord. But man, we can have a party. We can have a party every week that is like nothing that most of this world sees. And it's not about numbers, but it is about the heart. We can come together as a people of God and celebrate in the joy of the Lord in a way that refreshes and renews us in a spiritually powerful way. And that's all God's ever wanted is to commune with each other and do it to the glory of God. We commune with God himself. And it's very basic. So God saw their desire to worship and he cut them loose. So this idea of Passover, right? Part of what they're remembering with Passover is that when the Israelites were told that they couldn't worship by Pharaoh, that's when God intervened. And when God stretched out his hand, he saved this entire people from being slaves to being their own country. And Josiah's remembering their history. And God made them a people, he gave them a culture, he gave them a law, and they're going to actually do that. God provided for them with manna in the desert and took care of them. And so Passover is about the celebration of this idea that God made us who we are. God brought us together. He saved us and brought us out from the world and made us separate and distinct. And he made us into a new kingdom. And Jesus tells us the exact same thing. I've selected you. I've loved you. I've chosen you. I've called you out from the world. And I'm going to put you together in a thing that I'm going to call the kingdom of God. And I've gathered you together and you're special to me. And God, and, and, I, and throughout the last 2,000 years, God has gathered his saints and his people to gather as a church, to study his word, and to party like it's 628. And we can do that. Such a Passover has never been seen like that before. Amen. Lord and King, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that 
we get to hang out with a group of people that also want to know what your book says. And Lord, we all feel differently about what it says. We have differences in how we carry that out in our lives. We have differences in what gifts we want to work on and emphasize. But we have one thing the same. We love you. We want to honor you. And Lord, we want to get closer to you. We want to live our lives as close as you've called us to live to your will and your word and your way. Lord, we just bow before that. Lord, if there's somebody in the room right now that has sin in their life, Lord, may the word tonight convict them that it's time to clean it out and get rid of it. Lord, if they're struggling with getting rid of sin in their life, may they reach out to a brother or sister in this room and let's deal with that together. And the best thing you can do is put it out in the light, put a light on it and shine it and watch the enemy flee. Lord, help us not replace the evil things in our life, but to replace them with godly things so that we can create habits and lifestyles that are of peace and joy and love. And those things can be the center of our life. Thank you so much for this look at revival and what revival looks like in Israel and what revival still looks like today, Lord. And again and again and again, you've renewed your people to your word, not by comparing ourselves to the culture that we're in and thinking that we're good, but comparing ourselves to the very rigorous law of God and knowing that we are sinners and that we have nothing to judge other people with. We simply need to judge ourselves and move and react to that. Lord, we know you forgive us of our sins by the gift that you gave us on the cross. Josiah didn't know that. These people didn't understand what you were about to do. But I think they're watching from heaven right now and they realize the gift you gave and they can't understand why so many people alive today know the revelation of Jesus Christ and don't submit to it. And Lord, I just thank you for the, our, the saints that have gone before us and walked this path with so much less revelation than what we have. So help us, Lord, to be honorable to the revelation you've given us and to be worthy of the high calling of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.